John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and our patience, endurance, and that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say... Thanks be to God. Every time I read this text, I always go back to my youth group days, the days of Elijah, you know. Behold, he comes riding on the cloud. Y'all remember that one? Y'all better be glad I didn't tell Wilson to make you do that this morning. Y'all wouldn't come back. That's why I didn't do it. <laughs> Let's pray together and we're going to dive in, all right? I did have a little coffee this morning. I was just saying. God, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We're still new, uh, close enough to the new year where maybe you haven't really officially decided on your resolutions yet, right? Maybe you're still holding out hope for what you're gonna try to do for the next 12 months. But we're also just far away that maybe you've already quit. <laughs> Maybe, we're eight days, we're in that kind of liminal space. Maybe you've already made it, you're like going strong, or maybe you're like, I had the, you know, I was gonna be fit by the 10th, and, and you know, we're a day away, and you're like, mm, I'm not gonna make it. Um, you know, I'm still doing pretty good. I, I've got some, some goals to try to be in better shape. I wanna live a little longer, I wanna make sure my health is better, all those things, but that's almost impossible when you work at Dolphin Way, because I swear, we can't have a meeting without sweets and cheese toasts and cookies. It's like this church just wants my pant size to expand, and I'm trying to do everything I can. I don't want to tell the church, get behind me, Satan, but I'm real close. I go to these meetings. Whatever it feels like for you right now is the new year, whether it's just beginning or it's coming to the end of the beginning, wherever you are in your decision making, um, I have a recommendation for all of us as we are launching into 2023. My recommendation is that we all read the book of Revelation. I'm going to do a Bible study on it. We've got some other studies already lined up. There's no going to be accountability. I'm not going to follow up with you. I'm not going to send you text messages. Have you read Revelation yet? I just encourage you, try it and see what might happen. It might sound scary because you've heard about this book before, even if you've never read it, but hear me out. Um, in our resolutions, what we're trying to do is we're trying to transform ourselves. We're trying to convert ourselves into a new way of living into a new type of person. But the most real transformations, the most real conversions that happen in life are the ones that God does. Amen. The conversions and transformations that God does, those are the ones that are most meaningful, long-lasting, impacting, and the way God converts and the way God transforms has much more to do with imagination 
than instruction. We often think of our, our to-do list of how we're going to redefine ourselves, our health goals, our wake-up early habits, our, our seven best habits to waking up at the 5 a.m., whatever it is. And so we have these one, two, three, four steps. But that, that's not what the book of Revelation is when it's trying to tell you about something new. The book of Revelation provides for us a new type of imagining. By imagination, I'm not just talking about pretending or making up or inventing. I'm talking about images. I'm talking about seeing. This is what the book of Revelation provides for us. It provides for us a new way of seeing. It provides for us a way of seeing things that the rest of the world cannot. It reminds me of the imagining that two Jewish Americans named Joe Simon and Jack Kirby did in December of 1940. Maybe you already know this story. It was new to me. That year, there was about 75% of Americans thought we should not enter World War II. And about 25% of Americans thought that we should and that we were basically about to enter the war no matter what. Two of the 25% were Joe and Jack. Before December 1940, the way you would introduce a new character in a comic book series is to make them somebody's sidekick and then bring them along and then eventually spin them off to have their own hero story. But Joe Simon and Jack Kirk wanted to give Americans a new image of something they had never seen before. That sounds kind of redundant, I know. A new image is something obviously they hadn't seen before. And so, on December 20th, 1940, Timely Comics published the first entirely new series created by Simon and Kirby, featuring an entirely new character that no one had ever seen. And for the first time, and the, only, the first time anybody ever saw Captain America, he was punching Adolf Hitler in the face. There was no imagining of this character before then. The first thing anybody ever saw was an image of what has become one of the greatest Marvel superheroes of all time, punching America's arch enemy right in the kisser. It's one of the most famous covers in comics history. It sold millions of, I call it sold over a million copies. And all of this happened the year before Pearl Harbor. Wow. All this happened at a time where none of us were expecting that we would have such a tragedy happen on our soul soon thereafter. It was four years before D-Day and four and a half years before Hitler's fall. I mean, think about it. In December 1940, 75% of Americans think it's just best if we just sit the war out. But these two Jewish Americans have already have a vision in their head of what's going to happen or what they're worried about or what they think we should do. And so what do they do? They didn't put out a, an essay, the five reasons we should enter the war. They didn't try to get together people for some sort of learning. They created a whole new image. When people saw the red, white, and blue decking the fear, it was electrifying. It charged up the country. It spoke. Images do this. They speak in ways that arguments never can. They create realities in our mind that just discussion will never do. I've been in ministry for almost two decades now, and not a year has gone by that somebody has not asked me to explain the book of Revelation. And the first thing I say, actually, no, what they say to me is, we explain the book of Revelations. And I say, well, there's only one. So we're going to start there. It's Revelation. It's not Costco's or Walmart's. There's one Revelation. So this New Testament book is unique, right? 
When you read the rest of it, when you read Paul's letters, when you read the pastoral epistles, you get a lot of instruction. Do this, organize this way, think like this, don't do that. But the book of Revelation has a complicated history over the centuries of Christians trying to interpret this text. I mean, when we sit down with it, we talk to each other and we want Revelation to be like everything else. We want to go word by word, line by line, explaining exactly what every single part means and how it informs our lives and what instruction is it giving us. We want to define every symbol. But the best thing you can do to properly experience John's last book is to first read it straight through without looking at any sort of study material or any of the notes in your Bible, just read it, beginning to ending. Because the book of Revelation um, is more, more than it's like the other New Testament letters. It's more like uh, the movie Inception. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Inception, but it's one of those movies where you don't really get it until you see it the second or third time, but you had to have your initial viewing of it. It's one of those movies that you don't always know what just happened but you're so compelled to see what happens next, and then you watch it again, and that's what Revelation, it's more like a movie like that, a complicated movie that has all these twists and turns and things you don't quite understand at first, than it is like the rest of the Bible. And so if we approach Revelation the same way we approach the rest of the Bible, it's just not gonna make sense. It's never gonna make sense. You're gonna try to put it into a box in which it does not fit. And then you might say, well, this is scary or confusing or I don't get it, so I'm just gonna give up. So when you do this first reading, don't, remember too much, don't worry too much about remembering every detail. Revelation is kind of a big picture story. It's supposed to overwhelm you, particularly when you hear it read to you. I mean, after chapter three, that thing is just off and running, and the first time most Christians experienced it, they couldn't read. They just sat and listened to the whole thing. When Christians got together in the early church, their leaders would write to them these letters, like Paul and John, Peter, they'd write these letters, and the church would be sitting there, and they just listen to it read. So imagine you're in this first century church, and your leader has been exiled to Patmos. You haven't seen him in a while. All of a sudden, a letter shows up for him, and you sit there, and then the priest, pastor, the, the leader of the group just reads Revelation to you. It might be kind of crazy. Now, it's not so much crazy to them, as we'll talk about in just a second. They're kind of used to this language in the first century. But for us, like a complicated movie, whenever John's describing all these things, it's kind of hard to keep up. At different times, he describes Jesus as a human with white hair and brass feet, and then like a lion and a lamb and a root. In one chapter, he's a lamb preparing for a wedding feast, preparing a wedding feast for his bride, and he's also a warrior king with three different names tattooed on different parts of his body. It's an interesting book. Like the first edition of Captain America, most of the space of Revelation is not there for discourse or argument or instruction. It's there for images. It's there to create a picture in your mind. And as overwhelming as those images might be to us, these apocalypses, as they're called, were all the rage during the first century, late first century, early second century. The time in which John wrote this, there are other revelations happening. That's when you can pluralize it, when there's more than one revelation. There's John's, but at the same time, there are non-canonical, extra-biblical things that are not part of our Bible, revelations out there in the world that people are reading and they're sharing. At that time, there's the revelation of Abraham, there's also one called the Revelation of Baruch. 
And these are all the same type of apocalypses with these cosmic languages and these images of plagues and tribulations and fiery abyss. Apocalyptic literature was very popular whenever our version of Revelation was written. And that's why it's so easy to date when this book came into being. But whereas there's a lot of writers doing this type of writing, there was none who saw the things the way John saw them. The revelation of Abraham and the revelation of Baruch, for, for instance, they both mention a lion, but not like John. As you read through the revelation in our Bible, you'll come to a part where the angel says this. He says, look, the lion of Judah has triumphed. But when John turns to look at the lion, it looks like a lamb standing as if it had just been slain. None of the other revelations talk about the lion like that. The lion is normally triumphant and it can you know, rip apart its enemies. In fact, in Greek, the word isn't even lamb. It's more like itty bitty lamb. Like it's describing the, the tiniest of the lambs. The word itty bitty lamb is only used in one other book in the Bible. It's actually in John's gospel, but it's used 22 times in the book of Revelation. And the entire hope of the church, these early Christians, is that all the glory and the power of the universe, the one in whom they trust, all are in this being that is beat up and slain like a little bitty lamb. I mean, the book of Revelation, this is the image of what it looks like to emerge victorious. And it's very different from what we might imagine a superhero is supposed to be. And that's why out of all of the apocalyptic literature that is out there, the early church chose to say that this one is holy. This one is going to be a part of our church. This is the one we're going to put in our Bible. Because in every other story, the soup, they have a superhero lion. But in ours, they say, you know what? We heard about this helpless lamb that, that dies. And that's to us what winning sounds like because we know Jesus. And that's what Jesus did. John sees things differently because John has seen Jesus. And John knows that what the church becomes and what we will become, what we're going to live into, will entirely depend on what we see, on how we see, on the images that we let dominate our mind. You know, John's addressing these churches that are in a province of Asia that we now call modern-day Turkey. And in that time, there was a, the, the Roman ruler, the Roman emperor, was Domitian. And a historian once said that Domitian had a, a habit of opening the letters of the hero by saying, your Lord and your God commands you. And he's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself. The Romans worshipped their emperor like he was God. Not everyone loved the way that he opened his letters, but there were plenty with whom he was popular. I mean, this guy loved games and spectacles. And whenever people would come to the big events that he would put on, they, they would shout out to him. There'd be this group chant going on says, uh, let everyone praise our Lord. And they're not doing it about Yahweh or Jesus. They're doing it about the emperor. And so the, the word got around that if you wanted to curry favor with the emperor, you should call him a god and you should throw him a big Olympic style festival in his name. And there were lots of cities back then that, that had patron gods. Different cities, had they worshipped different of the Greek and the, the, the other gods in the area. The city of Ephesus worshipped Artemis. But the city leaders got together and they said, you know what? 
we're going to be the first city that dedicates ourselves to two gods, one that's in heaven and one that's walking the earth. And so they dedicated their city to the emperor and said, everybody who's in our city, if you want to succeed in this city, if you want to sell your goods, if you want to not be excommunicated, you have to worship the emperor. And so what do you do if you're a Christian in Ephesus and everybody is telling you, you have to worship the emperor. You have to worship the one who, who rules with crazy arrogance and authority. The one who says, look how grand I am. Do what the Lord has told you. Take my commands. Everywhere you look, you see images of the emperor, and, and you see his symbols everywhere, and you see his face, and you see these pictures of these new buildings that he's putting up, and all these things that honor him and the other gods. What do you do when you go to the stadium to watch the game because you love sports, but you don't really want to participate in the emperor chant? Do you join in so that nobody knows that you're not part of the gang? Do you say it without any meaning? Do you bite your tongue and hope nobody... Notice is, do you convince yourself you can serve two masters? It's not a big deal if I praise, as long as I keep them in my priorities in line, I can praise two people. What you do entirely depends on how you see the world and how you see yourself. And John, John saw everything differently because of a revelation that God gave him. John saw an image, not of some triumphant emperor that should be worshipped, or even just the image of some big lion who is ripping apart his enemies. No, John sees what Jesus sees. And that's what he wants his churches to see. John wants the churches to see the image of an entirely different type of kingdom. A society that is not ruled by those in power. A society where those in power don't lord it over those without it. John sees a ruler who says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. John opens his letter by saying, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. And from the seven spirits that are before God's throne and from Jesus Christ, this faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead and the rulers of the kings of earth. The first chapter of Revelation says, the grace and peace come from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Not from Rome. Not from other images that we let rule our lives. Not from the emperor. But from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. From the one who is who was and who is to come. And I, I just imagine how precious that must have been for those Christians in that moment, right? I mean, they showed up to church that day, whatever church looked like for them. Maybe it was in a small little catacomb. Maybe it was in somebody's house. And they hadn't seen John in a long time. And they're inundated by the culture. They're inundated by society. They're inundated by all these questions of themselves about, is this worth it? Do I really believe? Is it, do I care enough to put my life on the line, my, my societal life, and maybe even my actual life? Am I going to be exiled for my beliefs? And then they come in there, and they've been asked to worship these other images, and they can't help but see other things. They're trying to rule their life all over the place. And then in worship, they get there, and all of a sudden, they hear a letter from their leader, John who even in exile is still worshiping with them. What a, an encouragement that must have been, right? What a word of hope it must have been for these people. 
to hear that their leader was not dead and he had not given up, even though he'd been sent away. That despite it all, he recognized that the power wasn't just the people who could send him away. The true power was in heaven and it was with Jesus Christ. And one day, it was going to come back. So picture their faces when they show up and they get the revelation. What for us is scary. And we don't want to read it because it doesn't make sense. And there's all these different things about it that are just strange. But 2,000 years ago, this was the most hopeful letter, book, word that a whole group of people could ever have heard. Like, this makes sense to us because we know this language, but even more than that, somebody is telling us that God is still in control. That no matter what persecutions we're facing, no matter what these new harms are that are being brought against us, there is one who was, who is, and who is to come. He's creating a new image for them that they don't have to bow down to to the image of the emperor. They don't have to let other things rule their life. They can let God rule their life. I bet when they heard what John saw, They couldn't help but then see the whole world differently. I hope that it changed their eyes, their minds, their imaginations. Actually, I know it did, because here we are today. That's why I think the most important question when you read the book of Revelation is not so much, what am I reading, but what do I see? If you take this book and you try to analyze it and say, what does this mean, what does this mean, what does this mean, you're going to miss it. But if you read it, and then maybe you reread it, and you read it again, and you ask, what am I seeing? How does this change my imagination? What images do I now understand that I did not understand before? I think you take that same question and ask it of the new year, of these resolutions, Right? If you, if you look at your life and you say, I'm going to make these steps, I want to follow them, so I'm going to be perfect. And then when it fails, you're just going to feel like a failure. It's, it, whenever you say, you know, well, how am I going to make these heroic changes? What will I do? How will it work? You're, you might be setting yourself up for failure. Maybe you're better at it than me. I, I might just be, you know, preaching myself. Maybe all of you have always kept every one of your New Year's resolutions, and this sermon is just... I should have just preached it in, in, in my, by myself in the house, right? But if there is somebody else here, he's like, I want to see things, I want to be differently. Maybe the better question you can ask yourself is what do I see? How do I see myself and how do I see the world? Because I can think of all sorts of visions that can come into our lives that impact our ability to be the things we want to be, right? Visions of, of what we want based on seeing the things that other people have, right? Have you created an image of yourself that is happy and everything is great and your life is perfect because you have this thing that this other person has? Or maybe you have a vision of what you should look like based on the images you've seen on TV. And so you can't be happy until you have these images of yourself too. And so what do I need to do to do that? Maybe it's not so much how do you do these things, but maybe it's what do you... What do you want to see? What are you seeing? And John is telling us, look, behold. There is one that is greater than whatever vision this world can give you. These days, I think we are rarely tempted by the image of an emperor. 
There's not many people in our country who are bowing down to the emperor of any other country, and we don't have an emperor here. But instead, we are surrounded by images of superhero politicians that we praise when they win and we cry when they lose. We are often surrounded and controlled by the images of us typing in our credit card number into whatever website, probably Amazon, and saying, if I just buy this one thing, then I will be happy. I've created this image in my mind of contentment once I pay for this stuff that I can't afford. Which is why on this second Sunday of the new year, I thank God for the book of Revelation. I thank God that we can improve our imaginations, that we can grow beyond our own limited visions that the world has given us and see something that no one else could imagine. We can see the world as Jesus sees it. We can see each other as Jesus sees us. Above all, we can see Jesus. We can see the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And so here, eight days into the year, I'm praying not so much for a resolution, but for a revelation. I'm praying that each person in this room would have God reveal something to you so new that it just knocks you off your feet. That you see the world in a completely new way and that you are not bound and beholden to your own rightness. But that you imagine that there might be something more out there. And that you too will see the one who was and is, and is to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to invite